HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Today we have a, a, a very special guest talking about a very specific region of cooking and food. And somehow, I don't know, I always think of this food during the summertime, I guess, because, um, you know, you go to a big party and someone says, oh, we're having a fish boil or we're having a low country boil. So what we're going to talk about is low country cuisine, kind of a, a fuzzy term to a lot of people. And our guest is has been called the preeminent and the eminent authority on low country cuisine, John Martin Taylor, otherwise known as Hoppin' John. Welcome, John. Hi, Linda. Thanks for having me on. Um, first of all, I think um, we would like to have you... Uh, Describe what is low country and where is low country? Well, the low country is the coastal plain of South Carolina and Georgia, and it runs from the first of the barrier islands, which begin uh, to the north, um, just south of Myrtle Beach, uh, just south of the North Carolina border. Mm -hmm. They're barrier islands. They actually run all the way down into northern Florida. And so it's this low, flat coastal plain. It runs about 80 miles inland, 70 or 80 miles inland. Actually, it used to all be underwater at one, at one time um, huh. when the ocean was in. So it's, it's the coastal plain, but it's, it's also, I mean, geographically that's where it is. But it's also um, the, the, the land that was settled um, by Europeans uh, in the late... Uh, 17th century, um, the land between Charleston and Savannah, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina, mm -hmm. and Savannah, Georgia. Charleston was settled in 1670. Mm -hmm. So it's got a very peculiar history. Yeah, and um, where would you be from? <laughs> uh, well, I actually, I grew up about uh, 70 miles inland, but my folks had a, a boat down on the coast, and so I spent a lot of time um, on that boat. Um, yeah, well, on, your accent your accent does tell. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Actually, my accent is Georgia. I went to school in Georgia. Ah. Both, both my parents were scientists. We weren't from South Carolina. Uh, we moved there when I was three from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So I moved from one 
coastal plain to another. <laughs> and the food actually was very similar because the cooking in the Low Country is Creole cooking. It was actually, right, right. actually the first Creole cuisine in America. Um, well, you say you know the, um, this land that was settled by um, Europeans who came, but then they have a very interesting history post that time, in which forms the the food, the the, the Low Country cuisine that we know, which would be. Um, well, you tell us about that. Well, the, to begin with, there's there's a you need to know a little bit of the history. The Carolina was settled uh, was land given to a bunch of rich guys down on Barbados, who hmm. who had they were friends of uh, uh, they were second and third sons of the aristocracy, and and you know go back to the earlier part of the 17th century and and. Charles I had been beheaded, and so these sympathizers, these friends of the crown, had left, and they'd gone to Barbados, and they'd raised a bunch of money, and, of course, the guy with the most money wins, and they restored Charles II to the throne, and as a thank you, they gave him, they gave these eight guys all of the land south of Virginia, which they named Carolina after Charles, Mm -hmm. Latin for Charles. And so they came from Barbados, where with a plantation model. They had raised this all this money. They had become extremely wealthy in sugar and rum production. And so they came to South Carolina to make more money to fuel both the crown and their extravagant lifestyles. And they quickly found that rice was going to be the crop that was going to be best for the subtropical climate and terrain there. But of course, they knew nothing about rice cookery. Mm-hmm. And so they began to import um, slaves from West African rice-growing lands, so that's... such that by the middle, by 1708, very early on, Charleston was founded in 1670, mm-hmm. by 1708 there was a black majority. And so this West African uh, majority um, had a major influence on the cooking because the white men who came, they were mostly English and French. Um, the white men who came uh, prior to these plantations knew nothing about rice cookery. Um, they still, the English and French really still don't know much about rice cookery, right. actually. <laughs> um, but there these, these, these um, men who settled in South Carolina... They were very clever, and they hired uh, the great English philosopher, John Locke, to write a constitution for them. And in that constitution, he had um, gr- religious freedom was granted. And this was, you know, this is something that others had talked about here and there, but it was actually the first place in the world where this was actually put into law. Huh. And this happened coincidentally as... Protestants and Jews throughout um, Europe were being persecuted yet again. And so Charleston and the Low Country became a haven for uh, these um, people who were suffering from religious uh, persecution. And so they fled to South Carolina such that by the middle of the 18th century, half of the white population were French Huguenots. I, well, I was going to say that that kind of explains some of the things you see on on uh, low country cuisine menus. You know, the Huguenot Huguenot yes, tort, the, and I'm thinking, the, why? The Where'd that come from? And the, and the desserts, the sauces. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
but not only not only were there French Huguenots, the the Low Country gentry early on um, learned that they didn't want to use their land for animal husbandry, and they were getting cheese and and, and they're getting dairy products and getting wheat from Pennsylvania and from England, having it come shipped in, and they thought this is ridiculous, so they offered this land about 70 miles inland in Orangeburg to Lutherans from the Palatinate, so they came, and they brought with them great, you know, meat-curing skills, and they they raised the dairy cattle for them and the wheat, and incidentally, that part of the state is still the center of dairy production in huh. the state, um, and um, Jews came, um, but they were Sephardic Jews, and, mm-hmm. and um, we Charleston had the largest Jewish population in the New World until the Industrial Revolution brought the hordes of Eastern Europeans to the Northeast. But oh. they were Sephardic Jews, mm-hmm. and so they came from the Mediterranean with this great love of of things that weren't being eaten elsewhere in the colonies, such as pasta and and tomatoes. They sun dried tomatoes. Their recipes in their old books. Um, so an eggplant, um, so uh, which were also popular in West Africa. So oh, you have so you have West Africans, you have English second sons of and third sons of the aristocracy. You uh-huh. have French Huguenots, you have Lutherans, and you can see it in the foods. Interesting. Well, and we're going to talk about those foods more in, in a moment. But so the, is is Gullah the African or West Indian? What is what is the Gullah culture that is talked well, about? Gullah. When I was growing up, Gullah was never used to refer to people. It was purely the, the language. language. Yeah. Because the West Africans came from some 40 tribes, and they, they, um, and they spoke 40 dialects. Hmm. And, um, of course, they weren't allowed to read or write, and so a common um, language emerged, which is called Gullah. Um, uh, and in- interestingly, it's important to know that by 1720, the more than half of the of the settlers, both black and white, had first who came to Charleston via the Caribbean. So they were already somewhat creolized. Actually, uh-huh. they were already extremely creolized in manners and customs and language, and in the way they they prepared foods. Well, it's it's interesting because I, you know, when I was looking through um, your, um, I failed to mention your about your books. Um, John is the author of four cookbooks, the most recent, which isn't all that recent, but the one that is still, I, I think, the 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 tome and the resource for most people wanting to know about this cuisine is called Hoppin' John's Low Country Cuisine. And in looking through some of the recipes in that, I mean, you see, it's you know, it's evident when you read through the recipes, you can see all these different. Really different cultures coming through, um, and with strange names as well. And your <laughs> strange names. And yeah. for those, and for those who aren't aware about what Hoppin' John is, and you took the name Hoppin' John, tell tell us about Hoppin' John and how you took well, that name. Well, Hoppin' John is sort of the. It, it really, in the end, it all comes down to Hoppin' John. It is a it, simple bean and rice. Perlo, as we say, uh, perlo is most people would say pilaf or pilo mm-hmm. or pilau or there's many pr- pronunciations in Charleston. You also hear perlo, but it's a it's a bean and rice dish um, uh, seasoned with smoked pork and enlivened with hot peppers. Um, it's and the dish. 
came from West Africa. Um, it, it, it's a it's a great example of of Low Country cooking because the the red peas, which are Vigna and Guiculatas, the the Latin, it's uh, it's the black eyed peas. Black eyed but peas, there are right. dozens and dozens and do- hundreds actually of varieties of of, of Vigna. Um, but they came from Africa. The rice came from Africa. The smoked port is a legacy of European butchers. The hot peppers from the Caribbean. You have the cornbread that goes alongside it. That's a throwback to both the Scots-Irish breads and Native American corn. And then you have collards also from from West Africa that accompany it all. That's more pure Africa. You know, mm. it's just. And then we serve it on New Year's Day for good luck, along right. with a ham or a roast pork, with a host of condiments, which you know reflect all these exotic flavors that Charleston Harbor brought into the South, along with the enslaved. It's, huh. it's it, it, you know, it, it actually I I think of our condiments a lot as the real hallmark of of the cuisine, and that those tastes move in inland with. The plantation model, um, as Charlestonians and their ilk um, began to settle throughout the South. Yeah, it's interesting because you don't that when you think of low when one who's not from the area thinks of low country cuisine. Of course, we think of a, a shrimp and grits or a you know a low country boil, a fish boil, or or um, uh, you know the she crab soup or something. But we don't we don't really think of the condiments. We don't think of those things. Oh, it, it, you have. Black-eyed peas, field peas, cow peas, um, crowder peas. You have uh, all of these peas, or, or butter beans, for that matter, which civvy beans. Oh, like lima, lima beans, right? Uh, little yeah, baby the limas. baby little lima yeah. beans. Um, do you have any of these throughout the South serve alongside a, uh, a pork roast? And, and in the low country, those beans are put on top of the rice, and it's served with a pear relish, for huh. example. Huh. Um, and and that, that makes the dish low country right there. Interesting. That's yeah, really that's great. The, the condiments are a very important part of. And you know, back to shrimp and let's let's go to shrimp and grits okay. since you brought it up. You know, it's shrimp and grits is actually you know what most people think of as the defining dish of the Low Country table. Right. But when I moved to Charleston in 1986 to open my culinary bookstore, shrimp and grits were not being served in a single restaurant in the Low Country. Huh. And in fact, it was almost impossible to find stone ground, whole grain, heirloom corn products in the state. You might find them, you know, in a health food store sitting on an unrefrigerated shelf with no milling date. Well, you and helped that situation out, well, didn't you? Well, I did. <laughs> and the only, re- I mean, I don't take full credit, but the only restaurant I knew of anywhere serving shrimp and grits was Bill Neal's Crook's Corner in Chapel Hill, hmm. North Carolina. And but that, yeah. he, was, he was something of a culinary historian. I mean, when when I was growing up, this is a breakfast dish made with bacon grease and the tiny little creek shrimp. Of course, dinner back then was in the middle of the day, right. and supper and breakfast were interchangeable meals. So this sort of Italian-style um, polenta-like polenta, dish right. with big sh- shrimp was not typical back then um, at all. But, you know, I'm really proud to say that, you know, for the past 25 years, I've been trying to restore a cuisine that was basically dead when I moved back home. Well, I was, that's, that was for the second part of the show that I wanted to, I want to address the fact, is there really low country cuisine anymore? But, but before that, I wanted to tell people that, um, because you brought up the, you know, the shrimp and grits and the, and the cornmeal, 
Um, you have a, a website, hoppinjohns.com, where you sell heirloom cornmeal and, and grits and what, um, hominy? Do you sell hominy or? Uh, I don't sell hominy, uh-huh. uh, although that's, <laughs> Charleston has always been like New Orleans. It's always been its own place. If you say hominy in Charleston to old-timers, hominy means cooked grits. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's funny. Hominy is, of course, corn that's been, uh, originally it was soaked in lye. Right. And um, to de-germinate it, that's, you know, there's two ways you can de-germinate corn. You can do it chemically or you can do it physically by just grinding it and sifting the tough parts out, which have the germ, but the germ is where the oil is, and we all know that that's what carries flavor, and so you don't want to get rid of that. And it's very interesting because hominy and hominy grits uh, developed in the southeast and in the southwest. You know, there were hominy grits in in the southeastern United States and in the southwestern United States, they did the same thing yeah, to make Texas, to make you think of it as tech, a lot of Texans. Eat yeah, and to, yeah, well, or, or, or Native Americans with their mm-hmm. pozole and their, right. um, and their um, mazaharina to make tamales with. Uh-huh. And, so, and the reason it developed is because, um, well, sort of complicated, but the reason it developed is to, to make it last d- during the winter. Because once you grind corn that's whole grain, the germ with the oil in it is exposed to the air, and then the oil will go rancid. So rancid, corn. right, right. And in the Low Country, they didn't even have stones to grind with, and so they traded with Indians from the um, Native Americans from Appalachia. And the corn I sell is actually a, a Appalachian traditional heirloom. I use three. Three or four varieties. Yeah, well, it's all in close proximity there. Um, Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I want to talk more about some of the specific dishes that you uh, describe in your book. So we'll be back in a moment, okay? are back and happy to say that today's show is being sponsored by Fairway Market. Uh, and we are talking with Hoppin' John Taylor, John Martin Taylor, um, culinary historian and author of cookbooks and um, expert on low country cuisine. So, John, I really wanted to um, to ask you to describe some of some of the dishes that are, are really, um, well, that you describe in your book and that you I guess have sort of reintroduced to a lot of people, like frogmore stew and red rice. Well, red rice has never gone away. Red rice has been around, right? But what is red rice? Red rice has never gone gone away, and it's never going to go away. <laughs> no. I mean, it's. I mean, and you find it. You find it wherever rice is grown. I mean, it, it, 
a, a variation of it. As, as long as there is a, a, a European influence, too, you'll, you'll find rice and tomatoes cooked. It's interesting that you don't see it in, in Asian cooking more. Um, but red rice throughout the Americas, any place the Spanish have been, any place um, the French have been, it, it, you're going to find red rice mm-hmm. today. Um, but rice dishes in general um, are really the defining dishes of the Low Country. What we call perlos, um, which are like jambalaya, actually, mm-hmm. a shrimp perlo, a chicken perlo, uh, any type of perlo dishes. With if you think it, it's actually easier to think about the ingredients more than the actual dishes, um, right? Because the the ingredients are very specific. Um, rice to begin with, um, grits, yes, not as much so, um, but rice certainly. Yeah. Okra, um, right. the the great um, my friend and great culinary scholar Jessica Harris, who is the she's the expert on the foods of the African mm-hmm. um, diaspora, likes to say that wherever the finger of okra points, <laughs> <laughs> um, you. you wherever you, you find Africans um, and their legacy, because right. okra is, is definitely one of those. Also, again, field peas, these cow peas, mm-hmm. these black-eyed peas. Uh, when I was growing up in the low country, there were over 300 varieties of um, cow peas being grown. But by the time I opened my store, they were almost impossible to find. There were no urban farmer's markets in mm-hmm. Charleston. There, it, was, it was sort of a culinary backwater. There were... You know, a couple of French restaurants, but a couple of Italian places. Yeah. But well, you mentioned water, backwater, water. The, I mean, that region. A lot of what um, came of uh, the dishes that developed. I mean, there's such a rich aquaculture there. I mean, it, the it's seafood. amazing the agriculture. It's subtropical, but even more importantly, is this water in the three counties uh, into which modern Charleston sprawls. There are more than five hundred thousand acres of wetlands. Uh, and that includes, you know, former rice fields and 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 swamps and marshes and rivers and streams um, and pine thickets and hardwood forests. But um, plus a fourth of the saltwater marshes on the east coast, and so and we have an eight foot tide as well. So that's the biggest tide on the east coast until you get way up, you know, in northern Maine in the Bay of Maine, yeah. Nova Scotia, and they have those huge, huge ones. But eight foot's a huge tide, and yeah. so th- that tide brings into the, these marsh grasses to feed and spawn the crabs and shrimp and oysters, oysters and clams yeah. and, and mullet and shad and bluefish and drums and mackerel and sturgeon and all of these things yeah. entered the, the cooking from very early on. Um, it, a lot of I talk to other culinary historians whose expertise lies in other areas, and sometimes um, people will say, "Well, what's the difference between the cooking here and the cooking in at cooking in the Low Country and the cooking in, say, the Eastern Shore of Maryland or Tidewater, Virginia, um, or in New Orleans, for that matter?" But the big difference is in the makeup of the people and 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 the touches that they brought and the food stuff that they didn't necessarily bring themselves, but that came with the trade. I mean, Charleston was so, it was so wealthy. Uh, These people were 
off and on, it was the richest city in America for 200 years. On any given day for 200 years, there were 200 boats in the harbor. Wow. Um, and, and so uh, coconuts and bananas arrived from Cuba, which is a four-day sail away. Mm-hmm. It's very Nobody else had them, right? <laughs> it's still a four-day sail huh. away. <laughs> <laughs> but the interesting thing uh, is that both coconut and banana cookery in the United States was led by Charlestonians, and the recipes are legion, and their 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 journals are filled with them, uh, hundreds of recipes in both the printed literature. So if you look for if 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 you look for banana cookery and pineapple cookery, it probably started uh, in Charleston in America. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, and what about the, the like? Well, Benny wafers are so. Um, well, Benny, Benny, again, ingredients. Benny, Benny is sesame, sesame. seed, and both plant and word came um, with the enslaved from West Africa. And you you see um, a lot of these ingredients and words um, staying. I mean, sorghum, field peas, okra. Okra is a, a West African word, as is gumbo, which also means okra. And even New World foods, such as peanuts and tomatoes and peppers, though all of them are New World, the West Africans were already well acquainted with them. Hmm. And their yams were very similar to New World sweet potatoes. And so... So sweet potato pones, sweet potato pies and anything breads, sweet, right? anything sweet potato, anything with crab, anything with Benny seeds or okra, I mean, or sesame seeds, uh, anything with okra or field peas, soups, stews, um, breads made with rice, breads made with corn, hmm. uh, <laughs> rice dishes, just like jambalaya, only uh, only different. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, well, Karen has did a great job of of describing the uh, the jambalayas of the Perlows in her South Carolina. Um, yes, in her Carolina her, rice Carolina kitchen. rice kitchen, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. That was great. Um, Karen was a dear, dear friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. Um, dear friend of mine. I, when that book came out, uh, she came to um, to Charleston, and it was and I had a party for her in 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 the in the um, in my bookstore and. It was one of those freaky early frosts because in, in the Low Country we're subtropical, but you know sometimes you get a frost as early as October, and sometimes you don't get one at all, and you pick you know Meyer lemons throughout the winter. <laughs> but anyway, when I picked her up in the airport, I'd been uh, quail hunting, and I had freshly shot quail hanging in the back of the truck, and I just let them hang there for several days in the cool, and then I remember I served them to her with spiced mus- muscadines and with rice bread, um, and it was it was just the it, Perfect, perfect meal. Um, uh, rice, and, now rice bread. What, what? What's rice bread? Well, rice bread was the daily bread of Charleston for uh, two hundred years. Oh, would you what, milled flour, milled rice flour, no, or the uh, actual uh, grain? Uh, no, with the actual rice. Although mm-hmm. they're they're in in the Carolina Housewife, which was written by Sarah Rutledge mm-hmm. and uh, published in eighteen forty seven. She had over 30 rice breads, but when the Junior League uh, did its, published its famous Charleston Receipts, which is the longest-standing uh, fundraiser cookbook in America, still in print, so thousands and thousands mm. of copies, when it came out 100 years later in, in 1950, there wasn't a single recipe. The thing is that the rice, the middling rice, the broken-up pieces of rice, 
was cheaper than wheat, which was all imported, even though they had it being grown for them in, in Orangeburg, 70 miles inland. And so they cooked rice and then added yeast and flour to it and, and made their bread. And uh-huh. it is an amazing bread that I tried and tried and tried to reintroduce it to Charleston. I had a baker making it for me for a while. I felt sure the restaurants would pick up on it. Um, but like the Perlos, they don't really do those either because it's not something you can saute off and it's not something that sits well on a steam table. Yeah. So, a although I have to dishes. say, I was just, I, I have to say, in, in defense of these young chefs um, who, who are now uh, using the heirloom um, vegetables, some of this fancy stuff they're doing right now is actually a lot closer to the oat cuisine of Charleston, of antebellum Charleston. Uh-huh. Um, it's actually a lot closer. I think Henry Middleton would, would recognize uh, some of Frank Lee's um, dishes of Squab Perlo and, and Bob Carter. I was just down there speaking at a corporate chef's conference, and Bob Carter had wrapped um, sweetbreads with little slivers of, of country ham, and served it with a tomato jam, and that is that fancy stuff is also typical of of low country cooking, antebellum low country cooking, mm. the stuff that disappeared. It has always been this high and low, this balance high and low, between yeah. that. So high low country, low, low, <laughs> low on the on the uh, the um, culinary level, right? Right. Well, they, you know, but they, not but not not taste wise for sure. You no, know. Well, you know these. these they were so wealthy. They were so well traveled. They went all over the world. They brought back, um, you know, they they brought back European tastes, mostly European tastes, and and a lot of them were mimicking the French courts. I yeah. mean, when when Sarah Rutledge published Carolina Housewife, she had this is only fourteen years after after Karim's the great uh-huh. you know, chef Antonin Karim. Right. Yeah, uh, the great chef, and he had been chef to the to Alexander in right. Russia, and had created. Um, Charlotte Roos for him, and here, 14 years after that, she's got two recipes for it in her book, and this is, you know, this is evidence that in Charleston kitchens 14 years later, they're creating the finest European pastries in home kitchens. Well, and when I asked you uh, before our break that, you know, does low country cuisine still exist? Can you find it? And uh, and so you're saying, yes, you, you can. In the um, early 90s, I was producing, when the uh, Food Network first started up, I was producing a restaurant show for the Food Network, and we wanted to do a show on low country cuisine. We had to send the camera crew out to Edisto Island. Is it Edisto? How does Edisto. 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 Edisto Island to find, uh, to find, you know, any any shootable, you know, filmable um, yeah, low country it's, cooking. It's, it's it's taken it's taken quite a while. Um, it, it's always existed where there's been no break with the land or water. Mm. Uh, so you're the there are traditional dishes that that you will find at the homes of hunters, fishermen, and truck farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, the low low dishes, the common man's dishes, dishes like like. Uh, like Hoppin' John and and pine bark stew and 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 chicken bogs uh, dishes like that fish stews that type of food which Frogmore stew for those people um, 
frogmore stew is really just a fish a fish stew, right? I mean, and frogmore stew isn't a stew at all. And you know what? It's it's a it's a relatively new thing. Oh, is it? it? <laughs> yeah, it's a relatively new thing. It's a it's a New England boil. I mean, but it's it, it's not New England boil. It's it's a it's a boil. You have corn, you have shrimp, and you have sausage. It's, mm-hmm. it's something you do. It's just <laughs> that's what. Yeah, when when northeasterners think of low country cuisine, oh, we'll have a low country boil, and it ends up, you know, it's just really basically a like a crab boil or a, yeah, you know, it's a crab boil or, or clam, clam boil, bake, clam, clam bake, bake or right. whatever. Right. It, it, when you live on the shore and you've got people with sausage and you've got corn lots of seafood <laughs> and you've got seafood, it's what you do yeah. if, if you want to eat outside. But the the really the the fancy dishes the the jellied meat dishes the dobes and the and the perlos, um, they're the ones that that are complicated and the complicated desserts they're the things that have really disappeared that you really can't find. Mm-hmm. Um, um, now some of the desserts you you um, well we talked about the sweet potato. Uh, the simple um, things you pies. can find. The simple things you can find, but the the architectural nineteenth century things went went. They actually, they 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 went. They disappeared. You know, after the Civil War, everything about the culture changed after the Civil War. Mm. Um, not only were the men, the young men in the South, killed off, um, but they lost their Lands and the the powerfully wealthy white men lost their land coincidentally, as railroads and refrigeration were coming into being, um, and also rice, which had been the whole economy had been based mostly on rice. Uh, rice was being planted in Arkansas and Louisiana and Texas and California. Mm. Coincidentally, as heavy planting and harvesting machinery, which was too much competition for the hand labor mm-hmm. back in South Carolina, um, um, and it was too heavy for the low country soil. It, that machinery was introduced, so, so rice was gone, and with it a whole way of life, a mm. whole way of life, because the low country was rice. Well, we can try to recreate it as best we can, especially from the recipes that you've included in your book, um, help people sort of kind of recapture what some of those dishes and what the life might have been like. And I would like to mention that uh, John will be speaking, he'll be giving a lecture um, in Monticello at the Historic Plant Symposium, along with uh, lots of great people um, that they have there, on September 10th and 11th. And on September 29th, you're presenting a, a lecture, a low country evening with a tasting of low country fare at the Smithsonian. That's great. And you're going to be up our way on October 2nd. Um, yes, I'm going to be at Pig Island. Pig Island, Island. Out at, the, at the, the Food and Beer Fest on Governor's Island, yeah. Okay, terrific. Well, um, thank you so much, John. If anyone wants to hear more, they can go to your website, Hoppin' John's, and you have a blog as well. Or they can get out to one of these events that you're, that you're going to be presenting. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And it's been great chat. Thank you. And i like to thank Fairway Market for being our sponsor today. I'm Linda Palaccio. You've been listening to A Taste of the Past.